creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And today we are continuing our little mini-series on Colossians 3, but of course in context, so we're not just looking at the few verses people like to cherry-pick and throw around. Uh, Last time we went through Colossians chapter 3, kind of verse by verse, even word by word. And this week, Allison is going to be taking us through the first half of the household code, starting in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. And I'll be addressing specifically the section on slaves and masters in verses 22 and following. Of course, we'll, we'll jump in on each other and have thoughts and stuff like that. But that's kind of the roadmap for uh, for today. Uh, and it, We're going to see how far we can get until the baby wakes up. Basically, yes. So uh, this should be... Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. This will be a, a, a cracking good episode. So Beverage of choice? Coffee. Coffee, yes. That's going to be the beverage of choice for a while, since we have a kid. Yep, definitely, 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 definitely. A few moments later. Well, he's awake. Uh, uh, we paused, and I ran and grabbed him. Yep. <laughs> so here he is. We'll see how long he'll let us go. But the passage we are reading today is from Colossians chapter... 3 verses 18 and following, I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Can we go home now? Yeah, there we go. There no, we wives go. just, we'll just yeah, stop we at right, wives, there we go. Yep. submit to your husbands, right, yep. and that'll be it. Like Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is accept, your acceptable duty in the Lord. Hear that, Nolan? Yeah, that's right. Fathers or parents, do not provoke your children or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you shall receive, or rather, you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back, for whatever wrong has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a master in heaven. So no interpretive issues here. No, nothing to debate. It's all crystal clear. And uh, yeah. Okay, we can go home. Yep. We can go home. Yep. That's how this all works. Yep. The Bible supports slavery. There we go. Yep. And yep. That's, that's how it all works. We're done. Yep. That said, uh, if you hear Nolan, he may actually talk. So some as of late on the phone, he's been uh, saying, yeah, to everything that I say sometimes. So it's kind of nice. I mean, have someone say, yeah, yeah, to everything. It's nice so. to have a little cheerleader without the pom-poms, although he is very cute. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully he'll do that. There yep. we go. All right. So starting in verse 18. Um, I'm th- I think not. So let's go back. But that's what we do. We just start in verse 18 and it's all clear. Yeah. We start and end in verse 18. Start and end in verse 18. All right. So I think um, you can kind of see this whole thing, um, and by the whole thing I mean chapters 1 through 3, as kind of this idea of letting God's peace rule. And in our specific section, it I believe it covers less than ideal situation. Um, so to put it in perspective, these are situations that are what they are, and not things that are, could necessarily be changed. And 
the apostle does give instructions elsewhere for situations that can be changed. So mm-hmm. he has told uh, slaves that if they can get their freedom to do so. That's First Corinthians 7, yeah. Yeah. Um, so putting that in perspective right there, these are, are, are situations that are just classic imbalanced family household, you know, the household for a Greco-Roman family. Yep. And you kind of, you are where you are, and there's a lot of negatives in here as well. Um, so, but anyway, chapter one, I think you have this idea of love for others um, is rooted in the future hope, you know, one five. And this hope is, you know, dependent on the future, of course. This hope was heard in the gospel and grows within us and through us in the world. Um, and the idea is that power is rooted in Christ, in the image of God, and that's above all rulers and dominions. Everyone um, everyone who has authority, whether I would say um, other realms, whether it's people in powerful positions, and it's rooted in the same God who holds all things together, the creator, Christ Jesus. Um, who brought peace and reconciliation by his blood on the cross for those who are evil, even. And the thing is, though, um, God just didn't leave it there in the crucifixion. He resurrected him, and in there, there's vindication for Jesus and for us, too. And when we get to chapter 2, we have this idea that we can approach the so-called leaders and powerful people of the world confident in the true authority. And out of this confidence, we, ca- we get thanksgiving, um, and here in 2.6, it says, Therefore, as you received, <laughs> no one's kicking, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the idea is there's no judgment, there's no valid judgment towards those who don't have the signifiers of being religious or having status. There, and on top of that, we walk and we live out the rule of Christ. And that's even if it clashes with our context. So chapter three, um, getting closer. Uh, again, we covered three, one through 17 in the last podcast. So I encourage you to go check that out. Um, but the idea was how to live with Thanksgiving after the image of our creator and put away all evil. And basically the idea is that you have a life animated by the life of Christ and characterized by love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then we get to verse 18 through 21. And right here, we've got essentially a life that's characterized by God's rule with peace and gratitude. And what I would say are just sometimes soul-crushing situations and circumstances. Um, They're things that just, again, like I said before, just are. They're reality. Yeah, I mean, we had the civil rights movement in the U.S. and around the world, you know, other ones, but... You know, at this time, if you're a slave, like, oftentimes there's nothing you can do about that. Um, if you have an abusive husband or um, other situation, you may not just be able to get out of it here. I think um, a lot of us take for granted um, an amount of agency that we do get um, in our society. Um, that's, And I'm not saying um, it's perfect or that it's not, it doesn't have its own corruptions or that it's, quote, easy to get out of abusive relationships or anything like that. But, you know, the reality is, um, in many ways, we take for granted a lot of things are are better than what a lot of people throughout history lived through. It's not so easy to just say, like, oh, well, you don't want to be a slave? Then don't be a slave. Um, Similarly, a lot of these early Christians are slaves and are people of lower status, um, some of higher status as well, um, that are living within... Oh, (laughs) he's choking on his spit. And yawning. Very cute. Um, But... 
anyway, all this to say the the makeup of the church is primarily of people that are of lower status, of lower self, you know, they, they don't have the same agency and they're not seen with the same lens of respect as others. Mm. And we have to realize and not kind of, I'd say sometimes impress our ideas on what's possible, truly possible in today's world where we're at now with what is necessarily a something that can realistically happen where other people are. So that said, I would say that this passage seeks to, number one, undermine the power of those who think they are in charge at this basic level, at its basic level, Um, to turn our attention to who is truly in charge, Christ, and three, um, redirect our service towards God's future, and that's a future of inheritance and of justice. Um, It's kind of like we bring those things with us from the future into the present, just as Jesus did. Um, So with that, I'd like to go to verse 18. And I'm using the dread ESV, just so you know. Well, with some changes. Let's put it that way. Verse 18. Wives, submit to the husbands as is fitting in the Lord. All right. So already we've got, oh, what's this? He addresses the wives first. That's interesting. Um, So what's typical already is that the husband is the typical person that is going to be addressed in the Greco-Roman world not the wife. Um, and we're going to see throughout here with these pairs a pattern of addressing, number one, addressing the people of lower status, and number two, addressing them first. Um, essentially what he's doing is giving people of lower status agency. Yeah, it says to submit here. That's interesting. What's the, rational, what's the rationale? And ignore the baby crying in the background. All right, so, you know, we could go through the fact that in Ephesians 5, 21, they're both told to submit. We could go through what actually is submission, but we're going to, for now, just say, what's the reason given for wives submitting? Interestingly, it's not a gender ontology where the man leads by vir- you know, virtue or by nature being a man. You can contrast this with um, Aristotle, Politics 113, and others like it. I'll read it for you. Clearly then, moral virtue belongs to all of them, but the temperance of a man and of a woman are the curt... <laughs> are the courage and justice of a man and of a woman, are not, as Socrates maintained, the same. The courage of a man is shown in commanding, of a woman in obeying. And this holds for, of all other virtues, as will be more clearly seen if we look at them in detail. For those who say generally that virtue consists in a good disposition of the soul, or in doing rightly, or the like, only deceive themselves. Far better than such definitions is their role of speaking who, like Gorgias, enumerate the virtues. All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. As the poet says of woman, silence is a woman's glory, but this is not equally the glory of man. Lovely, lovely, lovely. So here we go. You know, it's, it's not rooted in any ontology or, you know, keeping order in the society. It's not fitting in terms of societal, keeping, maintaining societal norms, but it's out of the life in Christ. It goes back to Jesus. All right, so finally in verse 19, let's see. Husbands, love the wives and do not be harsh with them. We have the husbands are addressed now. Note that the love is the dominant directive throughout this letter. Uh, It's interesting. I've heard many a Bible study that deconstructs uh, love for wives. And they do this with Ephesians as well, um, where um, women need love. Men need respect or something like that. They ontologize everything. And 
that's really not the sentiment here. I think it's just repeating the command to love, which should be, I think, a little bit obvious since the whole thing is about love. And in this, uh, and in this letter, we have this idea that love undermines hierarchical division. So in verse 11, for instance, we had, here there is not gr- G- Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So love is that foundation for undoing these hierarchies that exist or these separations between groups. And it's no wonder that many manuscripts do read uh, or insert women into this mix as well. And probably because it's a good contextual fit. Uh, again, they're part of this, these divisions. Uh, Galatian also has this. It does include them. And in our own passage, uh, women are mentioned. So that makes sense to me. Um, I really like uh, what... Scott McKnight says about how contextually love fits. Um, he says it's covenantal. It's a covenantal commitment to presence and advocacy and flourishing growth into Christ likeness. Wonderful. Um, page 349 of his commentary. So what's one thing that loving one's wife entails other than everything that this epistle's been referring to? Well, it looks like Paul decided to spell out one vice. Don't, do not be harsh with them. So this harsh can also be translated as biz, uh, bitter, kind of this idea of a poisonous disposition, um, being embittered. And there's some interesting other grammatical things to note for uh, this address to the husbands as well. There's no your wives. So when I said I was going to read the ESV, you know, this is the book that I'm using right now, the Bible version I'm using right now. But in reality, uh, we sometimes have to make some adjustments. So I'll read this again. Um, Wives submit to the husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands love the wives and do not be harsh with them. The SV inserts your husbands and your wives. And a lot of translations do that. But it's not. It's articular. So, and I bring this up now with the husbands because it was the same with the wives. But I don't know. There's an interesting language convention here. So it's using an articular nominative plural. And that's often used by... Uh, used towards in people if, when addressing people in an inferior position. Paul Foster, in his own commentary on page 373, mentions that there's a, a convention in Attic Greek to use this instead of the uh, vocative or direct address, um, if you do address inferiors. What I find interesting, though, is that, yeah, he, he uses it for wives, as you might expect, you know, if, if you must address an inferior, but he also uses it for the husbands. That's interesting. Um, I, and I, I actually find it to be a little bit subversive um, since a lot of what you'll see in this passage, it's a lot more essentially uh, taking away authority, at least the authority and power uh, that the world views as such um, from those who have these higher positions. So really, he does. it's not as though distinctions are being erased as much as the hierarchy that accompanies these distinctions. Even um, even distinctions that exist only in, in the culture or only the ones that we place. Um, he is essentially getting rid of these hierarchical portions. At the end of the day, though, a new person, male or female, can seek a new kind of power, one that's animated by the life of Christ and is visibly uniting in love. So going on to verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So here we go. Children are also addressed. Our Nick is attending to our child, reading him blue hat, green hat now to try to distract him. That's why you don't hear any more weeping. All right, so here children are told to obey parents, 
both of them, not just fathers, interesting, think Ten Commandments as well. And what this means is children can also participate in the life and love of Christ. You know, it's not limited to just adults. Um, they can in their own way. And something else to keep in mind, um, we really shouldn't take this in everything too woodenly. I, I know it's very common to do that even in other passages where it's that, well, it says obey in everything. So that means, you know, even if your parent is abusive, that, you know, you should, again, just do what, do whatever they say. You should, um, maybe they want to do something illegal, you know, maybe... Interestingly, these people generally make exceptions for religious piety. So you can keep you can keep praying even if your abusive parent says you can't. But, you know, when it comes to other things, there's an exception there. But nope. Here, I would take the in everything to be distributive or directional. Um, it's a better match for this passage. And it speaks to how it, it speaks with the whole book in terms of um, changing your direction and directing your allegiance and your behavior towards Christ, out of the life that's given to you. Um, so moving on to verse 21. Fathers, interesting, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. All right. So parents are addressed next for how to relate to children. No, not exactly. It looks like just fathers. And, and, and interestingly here too, it is your children here. Not uh, Earlier, uh, we had to insert all the yours, but it actually is here uh, this time. But what I find interesting is that the fathers are the one addressed here. It, it's essentially the same. In, some, in many ways, it appears it's the same individual throughout. And Nick will perhaps talk about this more when he gets back. You have the husband, the father, or you could say the patriarch of the household. And you've got the master. That's interesting. I mean, a lot of this is, again, it's the same. It's almost like the subservient individual are, are all different and they're addressed first, but they just keep coming back to this, uh, this one position almost. So here we have, don't provoke your children to anger, henna, or so that. So what's the reasoning? So children won't rebel against the father's authority? Not so much, you would think, but no. Um, it's so that they won't lose heart, become discouraged. Paul uh, Foster says passive despondency. Essentially, it's so to avoid some psychological damage, and I find that I find that very telling. So again, what we have here is a pattern of, I would say, def accepting and addressing realities as they are, that there are people in inferior positions, and people in superior positions, but that's not how God sees it, and that's not really how things necessarily ought to be. And so what we have are is the scriptures are speaking into the lives of both individuals and bringing them towards a certain end. Where those that don't have agency appear, they're met with, they're, they're spoken to as though they have agency. And they're given agency in a very, uh, I would say, sometimes desperate situation. Uh, sometimes you're at a place in life where you're, 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 you're in a place where you are perhaps being damaged or maybe just kept from reaching your full potential. And there's not necessarily much that you can do about it. But God enters into that situation and shows you a way forward and says, hey, you know, I essentially I know I know where you're at, but you can sir, you're, you're called to my power. I'll, I'll deal with these guys later, but you're called to my power and 
Um, ultimately, I'm the one that's in charge. And here, I, I don't see you as inferior. I see you as a person. I see you as someone who um, has volition. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address those people that think that they're in charge and tell them that just as much. And so that's how I read the passage. And there's, again, more to be said. And so I will go ahead and grab Nick. All right. So we've looked at wives, husbands, and children, and then parents. And so the next section will focus on the slave-master relationship. And so uh, just a brief little bit of background. Uh, there's not a whole lot of literature suggesting that slaves had rights, which is kind of self-redundant if slaves have rights. But there are certain things in a society where you would have, or an ancient Greco-Roman society, where slaves would have some means of mobility, but they are not, you wouldn't say a slave has agency. She's uh, essentially a tool or a pawn of the owner and all of that sort of stuff. And that can be applied uh, interpersonally, it can be applied sexually, it can be applied across a whole spectrum of things. Healthy relationship, not ripe with abuse ever. Never, not even close. So... Uh, slaves are addressed in the same manner as uh, the wives and the husbands. Uh, they're addressed as a group, and they are addressed before their earthly masters. And they are given the same sort of verbal kind of command as was given children uh, to uh, obey or something along the lines of be obedient to, or it's similar to the submissive language that, uh, or at least the lexeme that's used for wives, although it's not quite the same. They're very similar. So it says, uh, slaves, be obedient or obey uh, your, uh, in all things, in accordance with everything, your, basically in, in Greek it reads very uh, woodenly as, obey in accordance with everything, in accordance with your fleshly masters or lords. Uh, we would read that as similar to the NRSV, which says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And so, uh, they're given a sort of kind of command, but this assumes, of course, that they have agency to do what they're being told, which already kind of has kind of cracked the substructure of the household code, I would argue. And Allison, I think, has already made allusion or uh, reference to that. And Paul gives a kind of parenthetical, you're not to do this in a certain way. And that's uh, it's a compound word, basically, eye service, you know, eyes plus doulos or doulao uh, language. So as uh, pleasing to the eye, you know, a, a serving, you know, basically you might translate it woodenly as eye service. The NRSV renders it as not while being watched, with, which is a, a reasonable kind of, kind of uh, rendering. So not while being watched, but as or as people, people pleasers, uh, anthro... Um, it's a compound of anthropos and aresco, uh, which to please or, or something like that. And so not in this way or in this way, not with just giving eye service or trying to please somebody. Uh, and Paul gives a sharp but, that's an Allah, uh, but in sincerity or we might say generosity of heart. Generosity not being uh, probably the right term, but you'd say something like purity with a pure motive. Do this with good intentions. And cardias is kind of a play on uh, kind of the whole person. Do this from the heart. Do it with intentionality. And there's also the language that we find in Ephesians 5, 20 and 21 of uh, phobeo, uh, fear language, you know, in reverence, uh, submitting to one another in reverence for Christ or fear of Christ, if we translate it woodenly in Ephesians 5, 21. Same sort of language here. 
being, you might render it as something like being reverent for, to the Lord or in reverence for the Lord or something like that. So verse 22 gives kind of a generalized command to obey in everything. Uh, but of course, there are limits to that. Uh, but Paul's limits. limits to everything. It's not everything in the whole wide world ever. No, not even close. Uh, certain things, um, and it, we'll we'll get into that. But that, of course, and everything is modified by the command to the masters later on. But we'll get to that. But just we want to go through the flow of the passage. So uh, do things we might say Christ like with Christ likeness, being conformed to the image of Christ, who himself was a slave, which already begins the suggestion that. Paul is not only uh, transforming this household code, but he's suffusing it with the Lord Christ, who was a slave, according to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And so verse 23 um, uh, gives kind of another kind of comment. Whatever you are doing, uh, do it from the heart or do it, you know, whatever your task, put yourself into it, as the NRSV translated. Do this work from the heart. Uh, Tsukes and Cardia, they kind of function uh, synonymously here a little bit, denoting kind of the agency of the whole person as a, as the active person doing something. And then, uh, as to the Lord and not human beings. So, uh, so uh, Sarka Kurios uh, is uh, fleshly masters. That is contrasted with the Lord, Tokurio, in verse 23. So this is done, you are to do this not to please your human masters, which is what would be expected of you, uh, but you rather you're to do it as you would do it for Christ. But Paul is kind of taking the position of the Lord of the household or the Lords of the household and saying, no, there's one Lord by which you are to show reverence for. And Paul kind of takes that a little bit away from the, the masters, essentially. He says, rather than fearing your masters or having reverence for your masters, have reverence for Christ. And uh, this is to the negation of the power of the anthropois, the, the sarca curios, the, the fleshly masters that are in power. And Paul kind of buttresses this a little bit. And this, and this is one of those things where in Paul, you'll see Paul give kind of a very, it's, it, it sounds pie in the sky, right? Um, do this for the Lord and not for human beings. It's like, okay, that's nice to say, but how does that address, you know, the, 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 the practical imbalance of power? And Paul actually addresses that later, but Paul, uh, in, in verse uh, 1, chapter 4, verse 1, but Paul is intent on kind of providing the, the, the persons in oppression a sense of agency. Rather than doing something for the sake of uh, these earthly masters, do it for the sake of Christ, who, and that implies that Christ, one, uh, is your Lord as well. So the Lordship of Christ is not just for the wealthy or the powerful, but also for the powerless, but also Christ identified with us as a slave. And so uh, Paul is maybe implicitly saying that the Lord knows and the Lord sees what you're going through. You are not, uh, it's kind of like the, 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 the story of the Exodus. The Lord has seen your cries and is basically here and to kind frankly, of deal with that. Frankly, uh, Jesus has already, sh God has already shown uh, whose side he's on by becoming the person that was marginalized. Yep. So those in power, you know, <laughs> need to remember that, that essentially God's already picked sides and essentially communicated to those with earthly power that essentially you're called to see yourself in, in, in the same way. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And so whatever you do, don't do it in reverence for others. Do it in reverence 
for the Lord. Now, that's not to say you don't revere one another, but in positions of power imbalances, uh, that reverence that is normally culturally expected to be applied to the Lord of the household or the head of the household is instead to be paid to Christ. And uh, Paul gives another comment, uh, for you know that you will receive from the Lord a reward of your inheritance. And that's, it's, uh, it's, it's, of course, inheritance language that is not often applied to slaves. Let's just be real about it. Uh, the slaves were your inheritance. If you uh, were a son or a daughter in a household and your father passed away, you, you inherited slaves. The slaves didn't inherit anything. But the fact that slaves will receive a reward of their inheritance from the Lord Christ uh, that is a radical phrase because it presumes that slaves are among the people who have been baptized into Christ in Colossians 3, chapters one, or verses 1 through 4, and that they are sons and daughters of the one Lord. And so rather than serving these, uh, we might say, fleshly masters, you serve the Lord Christ instead at the end of verse 24. So you serve the Lord Christ, implying you do not serve your human masters. What you are doing for your human masters, you are doing rather for Christ. And that's not saying that the lords of the household and Christ are the same. Paul's not drawing an analogy there. Rather, he's basically reshifting or shifting the paradigm of agency. And I think that's really quite profound. You serve the Lord Christ. You do not do this for your human masters. And then uh, in verse 25, uh, for excuse me, for the uh, wrongdoer or the unrighteous one will be paid back. Yeah, basically the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong things that were done, the mistreatment, you might say, that was wrought. Um, For there is no partiality or favoritism or you might say preferentialism in God. So God is not one to show partiality, which implies already that uh, if we're going back to the ontology point, slaves are slavery is not an ontological thing. It is a it's a a tragic, sinful reality that has has basically placed its claws into people or into groups, and that is something I think Paul is reacting very strongly against here. And Paul says the unrighteous one, and of course, slaves are not told are not given. There's no indication here that the slaves or the oppressed are unrighteous, but rather. Um, essentially what is being said is the Lord sees everything and if you are mistreated, the Lord will pay them back. And that's not a, a just a mere economic metaphor. That is basically Paul saying the Lord sees and the Lord, and uh, there may be, um, if we go back to the Exodus narrative a little bit, um, there may be fire and brimstone and locusts for those who have oppressed the oppressed. The oppressors do not get off scot-free here. And that's a great promise, I think, for those who are stuck in positions of oppression. And so, and this is given to the church, by the way. Yep, the whole so, church is, seeing, is hearing this. Yeah, there's a lot of people who, who cry incessantly like babies. Mm-hmm. Um, we have one right here. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of people who kind of think that they're exempt because they, I don't know, prayed a mystical incantation one day. But that often probably sounded like that. Yep. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's really it's going to show where their allegiance is. Mm-hmm. And that God can't be bought off. Yeah. That, yeah. That's God. why God doesn't show partiality to the rich, because if the rich think they are blessed because they are wealthy. Well, I got news for you. And Paul does, too. Uh, you don't get to buy God off because God is not a petty dictator. Yeah. So 
And in our churches, a lot of leaders, um, we have a lot of corrupt church leaders in churches and parachurch organizations. Not naming any names, Robin yeah. Zacharias. Yeah. <laughs> Except for that one, yeah. and uh, Hybels. And, and Bill Hybels, yeah, but, and all of them. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thing is, like, their leadership authority is not a sign of God's blessing. It doesn't make them uh, spiritually superior to anyone. And it doesn't get them out of from being judged, either. That's right. It's not a get-out-of-judgment-free card. Yeah, it, it's not a, well, I must be doing something right since I'm here. Well, you know, you could get your position by being really good at, smoo- at you know, smooching with people and, like, mm-hmm. telling people what they want to hear. Yep. You know, by doing dirty deals, by, I don't know, giving other people the shaft. You can, I don't know, exploiting others. We can list on and on. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, again, it's it's how God sees us that matters. Yep. And God, and then Paul addresses the... Uh, the masters in chapter 4 verse 1 and he addresses them the same way he does the slaves and the parents and the children and the husbands and the wives it reads uh, to the lords or we would say the masters treat so you have this kind of um, provide language um, um, to present or to give or we might say I would say something like probably demonstrate because uh, that's a similar verb that we find, or not the similar verb, but the same sort of idea is present in verse 23. Whatever you do, poeo. And so if you kind of take these not as synonymous, but as speaking to one another, these two verbs, then you have this sort of idea of as the as the uh, slaves or the subordinate or uh, oppressed party, um, whatever they do is to be done with a good heart. So to here, the lords are to demonstrate something towards their slaves and they are to show uh we might say justice or rightness and we might say it's often translated as fairness but you would say something more along the lines of equality isotase uh and that of course is not the exact same as our modern notions of equality but it's certainly not uh in incompatible with that um, the fact that you have a dikaio, or um, you might, or the um, dikaes, the the, the, uh, the that word group being used, which often u- is used in different uh, forms to refer to the righteousness of God, seems to suggest that justice is more than just fairness, and that justice and equality is something to be demonstrated towards their slaves, as their slaves have also demonstrated right uh, uh, a healthy attitude towards them. But I think it more a lot is being asked of the masters here because righteousness or justice and equality are terms that suggest that Paul is interested in uh, destabilizing the imbalance of power. And he also addresses them with the same knowing verb, you know, um, ido, uh, both, you know, for you know that uh, you will receive an inheritance, uh, a reward of inheritance from the Lord to the slaves. Also, you know that even you have a Lord in heaven. So that same Lord that doesn't show partiality, the same Lord that is giving your slaves an inheritance, and that's explicit economic language here, um, may suggest that receiving a reward of, of inheritance from the Lord might also look like receiving righteousness or justice and equality from the master. And so what the, the master is being told to give up quite a bit here. It's not just the slave that there's a, you know, there's a give and a take. The slaves are told that they will receive something from the Lord. And that can take the form of equality and, right, of equality and righteousness 
from their masters, which of course might imply several things. It, it might imply manumission. It might imply that the masters cannot use their slaves uh, sexually. Or the logical outworking is is equality. Yeah, that's that's the erasure of being a slave. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, but even you know, for you know that you also, or even you, those who are in positions of power, have a Lord in heaven. The, and, of course, the, the idea is the Lord in heaven sees everything that you're doing, and with him there is no partiality. Um, there is a sense in which you cannot hide from what the Lord sees. And I think there's something really profound about that. And we see that, of course, with the epistle to Philemon, where the entire household, Aphia, Archippus, and all of them are watching uh, Philemon's expression as the epistle is, writ is read out to him. And Onesimus is probably standing right there. And the question then becomes, is there going to be partiality shown? Or is there going to be justice and righteousness and equality shown? And I think given the trajectory of Paul's thought, especially as it relates to the ethical problem of slavery in his epistles, there seems to be a sense in which it's very hard to just keep the status quo because Paul is not interested in the status quo because the status quo has already been broken in Christ. Christ is now the nexus for the new creation or the new household or the new church or the new community or even the new family. That's why Paul calls people brothers and sisters. And he says brothers and sisters to those who are also marginalized and oppressed. And so I think taken as a whole, this entire household code is not concerned with upholding the status quo, you know, keep the ministry safe, you know, kind of things, as we saw with RZIM in Atlanta. But rather, I think something much stronger is going on because the ones who do injustice will be judged for what they've done. And those who are oppressed have a reward in heaven. And that is essentially God's way of saying, I am not on the side of the powerful just because they are powerful. I'm on the side of all people, and sometimes that means giving help to those who are in positions of oppression and subordination. And the fact that all persons or all parties in here are addressed with respect towards their agency implies that we have moved beyond the ontology of subordination in households and towards a the beginnings of the seeds of reciprocity. And I think we kind of miss this idea. We, we expect Paul to be so enlightened in Christ that uh, his households and his churches follow suit instantly and have no hangovers from the Greco-Roman world and patriarchy and hierarchy and militarism and all that. No, these, are, these letters themselves are the first seeds of the Christian uh, revolution, ethical revolution. And sometimes it takes a lot for people to kind of live into that new reality. But we are seeing the seeds of it now in Colossians and also throughout all of Paul's epistles, I would argue. But that means we can't expect so much from Paul, but we can expect more than what we've traditionally interpreted these texts as upholding. Hey, Nick, do you think it's right to say that Paul's accommodating a patriarchal culture? Oh, jeez. Um, no. Uh, in some, I, I don't think that's, that's precise. I think yeah. Paul... Uh, is is looking at that structure and going, this is what is. Because a subversion's not accommodation. That is correct. Subversion is not accommodation. But you also have the issue of, um, of you have a structure, and let's say it is. I don't know. It's it's it's. Uh, you're you're making. Well, I was going to say you're making coffee, but that doesn't work in this example. You're making kombucha, right? 
and uh, you are, you know, there goes uh, a fermentation process or processes and all that sort of stuff. And you're constantly adding stuff and making sure things work. Or if you're a home brewer and you do, you know, you make your own beer or whatever, there's a process of bacteria. There's processes of all these sorts of things. The problem is, uh, let's say that the, the ancient Greco-Roman household is a, a batch of bread or kombucha. You introduce yeast into it, and it kind of bubbles and boils and does all the things it's supposed to. But if you introduce bad yeast to it, then the batch begins to corrode and distort and all of that. So what I think Paul has done is he's essentially put the seeds of the gospel of grace into the batch. And while we, we don't necessarily see those seeds bubbling over and basically destroying the, the, the structure from the inside in his epistles, although in some epistles you can maybe say that, but what we are seeing is him embedding those seeds into the substructure of these existing realities so that in time they will be undone. Um, and Paul, in certain instances, moves faster than others. With, I think, Philemon, you do have an explicit demand of manumission on the part of Onesimus, which means the seeds have already broken the substructure in that geographic area. But it may not have happened as quickly in Colossae or in other neighboring cities. And sometimes just time and the gospel work wonders. But sometimes we expect instantaneous results from seeds, and sometimes seeds take a little while to blossom. So, no, I don't think it's accommodation. I think it is transformation and subversion, but we didn't see the actual fruit of that subversion for some time in some instances. Yeah, and something to think about, that, again, if you're in a subordinate position and you can't really get out of it, you're, you're not going to, like, I don't know, I, I mean, unless you want to get killed or, you right. know, something worse, perhaps, you're not going to um, necessarily, I don't know, say, you better stop being an abusive slaveholder. You well, better stop, you know, being, I don't know. Well, it's, it's like Paul tells people to, to not resist the empire. It's like, is that because the empire is deified and divine? It's like, no, because they kill you. Yeah. Like, sometimes it's you need to survive. That's just kind of the basic nature of of how sometimes things work. And it's not, it's not more, com sometimes it's more complex than that. Yeah. But there's not a whole lot more to be said. And the thing is, it's not just about survival either. Because, again, like... I think a lot of people uh, kind of let themselves off the hook by saying, oh, well, I just had to survive. Um, again, like subversion is not complacency. Subversion is taking um, something that should not be um, from a powerless position and essentially inserting and trying to reorient, uh, inserting something else and trying to reorient the entire picture towards something better. The, yeah, it's introducing the leaven of the gospel into a bakery and watching it slowly or quickly in some instances break the mold. Yeah, I think that's a good way to go. And um, thank you everyone for trying out this wonderful experiment with us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I used to play Tekken when I was uh, much younger and I was just so happy when they came out with Tekken Tag Team. Um, you can like be fighting with your characters and then tag, put a different character in. Yep. Um, that's what Nick and I have been doing today. With, yeah. uh, with Nolan. Yep. I, I think, you know what? I think in our Tekken tag episode, I would say you won this round. I think so. But, yeah. but here we are. Thank you again for all of your listening and your sharing this and your encouragement and your support on Patreon. If you like what we're doing. Uh, a few bucks extra a month goes a long way, but thank you to those who have supported us throughout this entire pandemic process and have encouraged us with what we're doing. No one's demanded we do an episode every day because we're all under quarantine or anything. So thank you to everyone who's listened. Thank you to uh, Mike Bird for being our loudest cheerleader. He doesn't look good with in a you know with pom poms, but he he looks pretty good regardless of that. 
So thanks to him and thanks to others. And yeah, thank you for listening to this podcast. And Nolan, do you want to say goodbye? Want to say goodbye to the people? So he'll yell and scream and cry. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got away with this. <laughs> bye bye, everyone.